This will be sermon number 11 in the series on the subject of infant salvation. It will be part number three of the subject of the children of God theory. And tonight we hope to conclude our examination of this particular view of infant salvation, if time allows. This view holds that God is the universal Father of all men, and that all men receive their sonship through the means of their natural birth into this life. This view denies the doctrine of eternal punishment for the reason that it would be a cruel and an unfatherly act for God to assign any of his children to hell. And if God should ever do so, it would cause himself a continuing deep grief in knowing that one of his children had perished. Hence, all infants, as well as all adults, shall ultimately be saved and inherit eternal life because they are a natural-born child of God. Now, we have granted that if the premise of this view be true, that God is the Father of all men, then the conclusion that there is no hell and that all men will enjoy eternal life is also true. But while we likewise affirm that no child of God shall ever suffer the judicial wrath of God in hell, we deny categorically that all men are the children of God and that God is the Father of all men. In its place, we have stated that God is none other but the gracious Father of believers, wherein he bestows adopting grace upon men of his own choosing, whereupon they are made partakers of all the benefits and the privileges of a full-fledged Son of God. We have done so by first expounding several clear passages of Scripture which categorically deny that fallen, sinful, unredeemed, unsanctified, unregenerate men are the children of God. Then secondly, we have shown the manner in which God became the father of men, and men actually become the sons of God. And this is in a previous message on the subject of adoption, which we will hope to touch upon in tonight's message. Now, in tonight's message, though, we want to examine in detail our Lord's statements on this very question, and then conclude, if time allows, with the gospel message relating to adoption. If you would, turn with me to the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, and we wish to examine in detail verses 30 through 48 in this chapter. Before that uh, we do so, we will examine the context, and because of time this evening, I am not going to read the passage ahead of time. Normally, we would. But we will be following each verse and giving the summation of the teaching of those verses in a debating fashion. That is, this is a debate between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders of his day over this question. And that is, who is a child of God and who has a right to call God their father? So we'll follow it right along the the, uh, principle of a debating forum between an affirmative and a negative debater, and then examine the verses in that fashion. Now, the context for these words, beginning in verse 30, go all the way back to the first two verses in the eighth chapter. And the setting is found right in the location of the house of God or the temple of God. And in this passage, which we are about to examine, it presents to us perhaps the most heated confrontation which ever occurred between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. You talk about some bitter statements made. You are about to be exposed to them here in this passage of Scripture. But this argument or this debate surfaced right within the confines of the house of God itself. Look in verse 1. Then Jesus went up into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Then look over in verse 20. Same context. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. 
and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Here a bitter disagreement occurs between Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders, and it's taking place right in the temple. Of course, not in the holy place, not in the holy of holies, but in the confines of the temple, which represented the house of God, where God met with man. Now, I would have us to observe a couple of things in passing right there. The Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of his honor for the house of God, did not feel it was a thing out of place for controversy to to surface in the house of God. If it was important to maintain the honor of God, he would do so even if it meant division right in the house of God itself. And then also, we would have you to uh, understand or to take note of that the heat of the controversy occurred right at the time when the church offering was taken up, right in the treasury. Jesus violated just about every rule of modern thinking as to how to raise money in a church. You certainly, if you wanted to have a good offering, would not bring up some disagreement or some business meeting proposition before you took up the offering, would you? No, you'd wait until you got the offering took up, then you'd bring the issue that you knew was going to cause problems uh, to, to, the, to the front or to the congregation. Our Lord Jesus Christ debated this matter right as the people were coming in and placing their offerings to support the ministry of God himself. Now, taking that in passing. Now, the question began in the twelfth verse of the chapter with this statement by our Lord. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. You're just a windbag boasting of claims which you cannot support. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ claimed here in verse 12 that all spiritual knowledge of God resided in him personally, that is, in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that any man, whether he be Jew or Gentile, must come to Christ and receive Christ and his teaching message if they are to truly know God in spirit and in truth. He said, I am the light. All understanding is in me. And the Jews said, you're just a big windbag. You're just a boasting of yourself, and your claims are not true. That is what began this heated debate. Now, the previous dialogue, or the pursuing, rather, dialogue that occurred between verse 12 and where we want to begin in verse 30, resulted in many of Christ's hearers hardening their hearts against him. But some initially gave him mental assent to being the Messiah of their expectations. And that is where we begin in verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. But, beloved, be very careful when you hear it recorded in the Bible that a group of people believed on him. Do not jump to the conclusion that they have become true disciples. These were not. They gave Christ mental assent as to him being the Messiah of their expectations. But now, after the others have hardened their hearts against his teachings, here is a group of his hearers which are giving him a hearing, and they're saying, we believe that perhaps you are the one that God has sent. Now then, Christ is going to direct his words to those who profess to believe in him. And then he's really going to expose that they have no true understanding of sin, they have no true understanding of God's Messiah, and they have no true faith in him personally. So let's begin now after having the context set forth and watch this debate pursue. Verses 31 through 48 will now focus on the question, as to whether man is or is not a natural son of God at his physical birth. Jesus will answer in the negative. That is, he will deny that men are the natural-born sons of God by birth. And the Jews will answer in the affirmative. 
they will claim that by their natural birth they were the sons of God and thus had right to all the privileges and the promises which God had bestowed upon them through their father Abraham. As this is a running debate, and I have had a background in debating procedures, I want to lay out this exposition tonight in the form of a debate. In a formal debate, you usually have four parties. You have a first and second affirmative, and then you have a first and second negative, which two individuals will debate the question on the affirmative, two individuals will debate it on the negative. And then each period, or each speaker will give, be given a period of time to present their case, and then the opposing party will present theirs. Then each speaker will be given a few moments for a rebuttal. And then the conclusion will finally be reached. And ahead of time, though, they are assigned the question that is to be debated upon. We will put this question in the form of this resolution, which Christ and the Jewish leaders will debate. First of all, in this fashion, quote, Resolved that men need to be committed to a living, vital union with Jesus Christ, before they can have a legal right to call God their Heavenly Father. Unquote. Now, I'll give that question again, and then we'll watch how it is answered pro and con by Jesus and the Jews. Resolved that men need to be committed to a living, vital union with Jesus Christ before they can have a legal right to call God their Heavenly Father. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ will affirm that, and the Jews will deny it. So first, Jesus will begin the debate in verses 31 and 32, when he will have the floor in what would be known in the debating procedures as the first affirmative speaker. And let us read now verses 31 and 32. Jesus states, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, of course, if someone has already been saved, they've already been set free. But here Jesus says to those who make a profession unto him, if you continue in my message, then that will manifest or reveal that you're truly my disciples, and the truth shall set you free. Now, Jesus brought on the controversy by saying to the Jews, you're slaves, you are bondservants, you're not free men. If you would receive my word and my message and become my disciples, you would become free men. My word would emancipate or liberate you. So, in this manner, Jesus then explains that true acceptance of him as a Savior, or a Deliverer, for that's what the word Savior means, involves a total surrender or commitment to him personally, to deliver one from bondage to Satan and their own sinful self. He then goes on to state that true disciples of Christ will manifest themselves as such by continuing to abide in the word of Christ, so that it becomes the rule of one's life, and that abiding in the word is the same thing as obedience to Christ. Hence, a desire to obey Christ leads to a genuine knowledge of the truth which in turn sets one free from sin and self. Thus a human being is truly free and liberated by Christ when the message of Christ rules his heart and life so that sin no longer dominates his own life. Christian liberty, then, or freedom in Christ, now listen carefully, is not therefore when a person can do what he wishes to do. But true Christian liberty or freedom is, now listen, when a person wishes to do 
and can do what Jesus says he ought to do. Now, I'm going to run that by you again. Christian liberty is not when a person can do what they wish to do. That is not being delivered from sin. And sometimes we make statements like that. Since I have been saved, I can now do whatever I want to do. Now, that is not being delivered in the Christian sense. Christian freedom or liberty, I say again, is when a person wants to do and is enabled to do what Christ says he ought to do. Now, you reflect upon that, and that is what Christ is saying in verses 31 and 32 to a group of people who felt that they were objectively all right before God because of a natural birth they inherited from their father, Abraham. Now, as soon as Jesus showed these people that mere mental assent or acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah of their dreams was not enough, but that they must surrender to him as their personal deliverer from bondage to Satan and sin, they then become furious and refuse to believe any longer in him in any sense. And this proves that they were never truly joined in a living union with Christ, for that's what they were denying. They were denying that they needed a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for a political Messiah to deliver them from Roman bondage, but they were denying that they themselves were anything related to sinners because they had an inheritance from God based through their physical lineage to Abraham. Now, it's time for the Jews to give their first negative reply. Jesus has affirmed now that they are sinners that they are slaves to sin, that they need liberated, that they need freedom, and that freedom can only be found in him. Now let us look in verse 33 at the reply to the Jew, of the Jews. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now here they come back in the first negative when they have their time to talk, and they say, We are Abraham's children, and were never in bondage to any man. How can you charge us with being slaves? We're free in our physical relationship to Abraham. I look carefully at their statement. Their reply consisted of an angry objection containing two propositions, one consisting of what is known as a premise and the other a conclusion. The premise is simply this, we be Abraham's seed. The conclusion, we were never in bondage to any man. Therefore, we are free men. We are not slaves to sin, as you are charging us with. We are the natural-born sons of God through our father Abraham. Now, having given their negative statement to the resolution question as to whether a man is a natural-born son of God or whether a man needs to come to God's Messiah and be joined to him so as to be delivered from sin, now both Jesus and the Jews have given their positions. Jesus says, you need me as a Savior, gentlemen. The Jews said, no, we don't need anybody as a Savior. We already are delivered. We were never in bondage to start with. They were denying their sinfulness and in need of God's Messiah to deliver them. So Jesus now has his time in the third part of the debate, which would be known as the second affirmative speaker. Verses 34 through 38, Jesus states then, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the what? Is the servant of sin. Who is a slave? It's one who commits sin. He has a master to whom he's obedient. 
And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. That is, a slave may be owned by one master for a period of time, but he's always subject to be sold to another master so that his home is such that it's never permanent. He can be taken from one location unto another, but if a son is ever born into a family, he has permanent parental inheritance rights. So that you are slaves in that you are committing sin, revealing that you are a servant of another. Verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. Now, here is his statement. Notice very carefully how Jesus replies to this. First of all, he dealt with their conclusion first. Now, their conclusion was, we were never a slave or in bondage to anyone. And Jesus did so by, first of all, saying in this fashion, If it be granted your premise that you are Abraham's seed, still your conclusion would not be justified. Because even though you would be Abraham's seed, it is how you live in your moral conduct which really determines your relationship to Abraham as far as God Almighty is concerned. So that whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. Whoever you are obeying, that individual is your master. You are sinning. You are sinners. Therefore, even if you are the children of Abraham, that still does not make it automatic that you are not a sinner. Now, see, there are still people around like that today. They think that as long as they have been born into this world that they are not so sinful as to be disinherited by God. But they are already God's children. So Jesus then takes the conclusion, and he says, Moral servitude is then created by conduct and not by one's physical position in birth. That is, a slave to sin manifests itself in how one acts. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as long as you're serving another and obedient to the will of another, you are a slave and not a free man. If Abraham's children obey Satan and are obedient to his will, regardless of fatherhood, they are the servants of him to whom they bow as Lord and Master. Your premise, he says, does not contain nor support your conclusion. For though your ancestry is Abrahamic, ye have yielded yourselves to Satan in the committing of sin, and you are therefore his servants and bondmen. You are mistaken. You're not free men. You are not free men. You are in bondage to sin, even though you have sprung physically from Abraham, your father. Then, after dealing with the conclusion, Jesus then turns to the major premise itself, that being, we are Abraham's seed, and finds as much fault with it as he did with the conclusion. Now, they're hiding their sinfulness behind their ancestral relationship to Abraham, thinking that as long as they're born of Abraham, why, nothing could make them wrong in their relationship with God. The Jews are claiming, Abraham is our father. Our freedom is ancestral. Our liberty is a birthright. Our rights are guaranteed to us by the covenant which God made with Abraham. To say that we are slaves is a reflection on God and a contradiction of God's providential dealings with us as Abraham's children. You cannot charge us with that. But Jesus said, I have something else to say. He says, your premise is faulty also as well as your conclusion. He says, I well assent and acknowledge that you are Abraham's seed. 
But there is a sense in which you are not Abraham's seed, as well as a sense in which you are Abraham's seed. I acknowledge that you are Abraham's children according to the flesh, but I deny that you are Abraham's children according to moral disposition and behavior. The proof that you are not Abraham's spiritual children is the fact that you do not do the works of Abraham. Like father, like what? Like son. Now, you say you're Abraham's children, but Abraham not only had faith in God, he had works in his moral character to demonstrate that faith. Now, he said you're descended from Abraham, uh, from a physical lineage, but you're not related to him in a moral or spiritual lineage. Why is this? Now, watch your text carefully in verse 37 and 38. Because you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth of God. Abraham would not do such a deed. It would altogether be foreign to his character, and therefore your deeds, your life, and your character show that there is another one somewhere in your spiritual ancestry. Like father, like child, but you're not like Abraham because you are not of pure spiritual descent. Now, beloved, you've got to look there carefully while he's actually charging. Uh, them with being. He's going to touch on it right here in just a moment, be calling them finally, you are your father the devil. But they know what he's talking about. And they know such a way that they say in return, you mean there's been some, what can I say, hanky-panky going on in our ancestry? You mean Abraham... And we, his blood, there may be another father, another bloodline running in us. Don't you call us illegitimate bastards. Don't you call us illegitimate children. We be not born of fornication, of a sexual union in which that we can't determine who the father was. And that is their reply. Now look at that reply in verse 39, where the second negative speaker for the Jews will then speak. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. The Jews, upon hearing Christ state that his father and their father were not the one and the same, again appeals to their Abrahamic ancestry. Now, Jesus is beginning to pin it down. Who is a child of God? Jesus said, God's my father, but you have a father. It's not the same father. So the rub is the lightning's just about to strike. The hot air is about to hit with the cold air and frictions about to come forth. So the Jews then, upon hearing that, then they again appeal to their Abrahamic ancestry. Jesus replies in the first affirmative rebuttal. Now, the question has been clearly stated. Who has a right to call God their father? Jesus says, you must be related to me. The Jews said, no, we're related to God, our father, through Abraham, through our physical birth. Now, let's look at the rebuttal. Verses 39 through 41. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Here's Jesus' rebuttal. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that had told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Now Jesus reminds them about Abraham's history. And in doing so, he describes Abraham's moral character and contrasts it to that of the Jews. If you would take time to go back in Genesis chapter 18, you will remember there how God sent angelic messengers to Abraham with the news that he and Sarah were going to have a baby. And Abraham received the messengers of God into his house. What Jesus was saying 
Abraham welcomed God's messengers. I am God's final messenger. You don't welcome him. Abraham received the messengers of God, but you're not of Abraham because you're not receiving God's messengers nor his message. Also, Abraham, I believe it was in Genesis chapter 22, had another angelic messenger sent to him. And through that, Abraham understood the gospel message that a day would come in which God's Messiah would come and deliver his people from their moral bondage of their sin. Look over in John chapter 8 and verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was what? And was glad. He rejoiced in what he saw. You remember Simeon at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? He looked for redemption in Israel. Ah, he was different than his fellow kinsmen who were looking for deliverance from the Romans. That man was looking for gospel redemption in the midst of Israel. Abraham saw a day coming in which Messiah would come and deliver his people from bondage to their own sin. Hold your finger there in John 8 and go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. Speaking of the great patriarchs of whom Abraham is particularly uh, mentioned, we read in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. The message which I am delivering unto you, you are illegitimate. Something has happened somewhere between Abraham and you. Something has shown up in your lineage somewhere whereby you have become slaves in your moral conduct. Now, the Jews then, if their time to speak in what would be called the first negative rebuttal. In verse 41 and the latter part, they said, then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now, I believe that this is not only a defense of what Jesus is saying, in that he is saying, now, listen, I've got a father. And you've got a father, and they're not the one and the same father. And then I think, if I understand this with some other text, that they give a slanderous report here. Wait a minute. We are not the ones that are illegitimate. We're not the bastards. We're not the impure offspring. We know who our father is, but who is your father? We know the reputation, and the reputation still is among the Jews that Jesus was the illegitimate, blonde-haired son of a German soldier. And they ask him back up in verse 19, where is thy father? Where is your father? You're a Samaritan, they'll later charge him. You're a half-breed. You're the illegitimate one. We're the pure lineage of Abraham. Upon hearing then that Jesus clearly charged that they were not Abraham's children, they angrily charged that Jesus is casting a discrediting reflection, not upon themselves, but upon their father Abraham and through Abraham upon God himself. What are they but saying in this line? We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. You are charging us with illegitimacy and uncleanness. Your effort is to cast a reflection upon our reputation as Jews. You acknowledge that we have descended from Abraham according to our history, and yet you charge fornication. That charge goes back not only to us, Jesus, 
But when you charge fornication to us, you're charging it to Abraham himself and through Abraham to God. You're like the devil who in the garden tried to discredit the very character of God. And so you're nothing but an illegitimate son yourself, and you're doing the works of the devil who forever tries to discredit the character of God Almighty. If the great name of Abraham is not sufficient to protect our reputation so that we can run our lineage beyond Abraham, we can even go back to God himself as our father. See, that's where their claim is. God is our father through Abraham's blood. And when you cast a reflection upon that relationship, you are casting a reflection upon God himself. You're doing the work of the devil. Now then, Jesus has the opportunity to speak in what would be called the second affirmative rebuttal in verses 42 through 47. I want you to watch carefully as I read these words how in a very calm and courageous manner Jesus replies to this most stinging criticism of himself. There's no more stinging criticism that can be given to a person than to say that they're of the devil. Because it's the devil's job to discredit the character of God. You remember that's what he did with Eve? God doesn't really love you. If he did, he wouldn't act this way. And so the Jews are saying, you're a devil. You're trying to discredit God's character just like he did toward Eve. And to cause her to doubt the goodness of God. Now Jesus is very calm. Very courageous. He replies. And about I give a note first. It's a mark of a person in control of himself and his message or his point of view when he remains calm as the heat of controversy begins to rise. Now, you reflect on that. Use it in your business meeting. Okay? Say it again. It's the mark of a person in control of himself and his point of view when he can remain calm as the heat of the controversy starts to arise. Now, Jesus doesn't get all flustered. In a very calm and courageous manner, he gives his reply. Why? Because he's in control of himself. He's in control of his point of view. He knows his point of view. He knows the other side's point of view. And therefore, he can remain calm. It's the frustrated person who loses confidence in his own point of view on the floor. And then he also loses confidence that maybe the other guy is getting the better of him. That's the person that blows up and cannot control himself. Now let's watch as we now read, starting in verse 42. If Jesus were your, or if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Or why can you understand my utterances? Even because you cannot hear my word. And that literally is, even because you do not desire to hear my word. Now, that's the moral inability of man. Man can't hear the word of God because he doesn't have ears. Or because he can't understand the message. It's because his heart does not desire the message of God to him as a sinner. Why can't you understand my utterances? Now, back up in verse 19, they'd ask, where is thy father? In verse 22, the Jews said, will he kill himself? And then down in uh, uh, verse 28, 27, they understood not that he spake unto them of the father. And the previous other utterances, well, what do you mean? By these statements, Jesus said, why can't you understand what I'm talking about? Because you don't desire to receive me as God's messenger and you don't desire the message. And that's what keeps a person from coming to Christ. That's what keeps a person out of the kingdom of heaven. They don't love God. They don't love his messenger and they don't love his message. That's total inability, moral depravity. Look on. You are of your father the devil, the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh of a, a lie, he speaketh of his own. He is a liar and the father of it. 
And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which one of you convinceth me of sin? That is, which one of you can charge and convict me in a court of law of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are what? Ye are not of God. Now there's Jesus' rebuttal statement. What is Jesus actually saying here? If God were your father, you'd love me. Why? Because I came forth from God. I'm God's son. If you love God, you'll love me. Those who are like God. I came out of his loins. I possess his spirit. I'm sent into the world by him. Judge my parentage by my works. I do the works of God. I know my father and am like him. My deity is thus made manifest. If you had the same ancestry, you would manifest it in the same way. But you hate me. You seek to kill me. I've done you no harm. I've only told you the truth. But you're murderous in your spirit. That's not the spirit of God, whom you claim to be your father. If ye were the children of God, you would love him, and you would love the persons who are like God. God's not your father. You're of your father the devil. His lust, your lust, rather, is his spirit and temperament. He was a murderer from the beginning. You're just like him. The family resemblance is real close. I see it in the picture. Like father, like son. The kinship is shown in your behavior. You overthrow my claim to divine sonship in the same way which I will assail your sonship. Test my claim by my life and my words and my spirit and conduct, which of one of you can try and convict me of sin? Try me. Is there anything in me about which is inconsistent with the claims which I am setting before you? The child of God hears his voice and obeys his will. You hear his words, but you do not do them. I hear them and do them. Now, I do not deny that you're sprung from Abraham. According to the flesh, but I affirm that you are sprung from the devil according to your spirit and moral conduct. I have not charged you with fleshly fornication, but I do charge you with spiritual and moral fornication. One father created you, another father hath begotten you. It is this dual fatherhood, this dual paternity, the paternity of God by creation, the paternity of the devil by practice which makes your paternity mixed in your honor clouded and your reputation that of spiritual fornication and uncleanness. God is your legitimate and rightful father, but Satan is your illegitimate and adopted father, and you give him your love and obedience. Now then, Jesus finishes with that conclusion. The Jews have the final say. And in verse 48, they say it in the last negative rebuttal. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast the devil. Is what you have just said not justify our right to call you an illegitimate bastard child doing the work of the devil himself? That's all we got to say. You are of the devil to speak like that to us. Now, what is the conclusion that can be drawn from this heated debate of controversy? Jesus' views on the resolved question as to whether man by his physical birth is a child of God or not a child of God can be summarized in this fashion. From this exposition of Scripture, it is clear that there was a sense in which these unbelieving, Christ-hating, Christ-killing, devil-serving Jews were sons of Abraham. And there was another sense in which they were not the sons of Abraham. They were the sons of Abraham in the sense that they were sprung from his loins and traced their existence back to him. But they were not the sons of Abraham in the true spiritual and moral sense. As a natural father, Abraham must say, yes, they're mine. But as the father of the faithful, Abraham would repudiate them. 
Now turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, let's see who is a true Jew. Who is a true Jew? Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one where? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Who is a true Jew? Who can say Abraham is my father? Not one who has a physical lineage to Abraham, but one who has had an experience of spiritual circumcision upon the heart Inwardly, wherein his moral conduct is likened to that of Abraham. Now, that is the conclusion to the debate. Now, then, let's press on in the remaining moments of our message tonight. Having seen that Jesus denied that men by nature can rightfully call God their father, their true father, Then let us look at the message of adoption in the gospel. This involves us recognizing man's sonship first in Adam. The scriptural statements in Genesis 1 verse 27 read, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. This connected with the statement in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, I believe around verse 36 or 37, says, which was the son of Adam, who was the what? The son of God. All right, so there was a sense in which Adam was the son of God Almighty in the morning of his creation. How did this take place? The order in which Adam became related to God is presented to us first in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. Would you turn with me there? How did Adam become related to God? Genesis 2 verses 7 and 8. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had what? Whom he had formed. The first relationship that man had established in his relationship with God was that of a creature to a creator. Then the second relationship that man had established with God is found in verses 15 through 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God did what? Commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now God takes man as his creature and imposes upon him a law wherein man becomes a servant, so that God is his sovereign Lord and man is his servant. Creature, creator, master, servant. Now since he is also called the Son of God, I understand at this time that God adopted man into his family and gave him the privileges of being a son of God Almighty. Now, there are two characteristics of this Adamic sonship, which, if we overlook, will plunge us into all sorts of theological difficulties and confusion. And this is why we're having to wade our way through this whole mess, because people overlook these characteristics of Adam's sonship. They are, first, the method of Adam's original sonship, and secondly, the dissolvability of man's original sonship. We have already, in previous messages, touched upon how Adam became a son of God. And we have shown that it was by means of a legal, natural adoption, and not by means of natural birth or generation from God. 
Jesus Christ alone is the only begotten Son of God. If Adam was born through natural generation, then he would be a little God in the sense that I produce children in my own likeness and my own image. God did not impart to Adam his own nature when he created him. So, since there are only two ways of a man or a father becoming a father, that being through natural generation or adoption, then Adam must have been adopted into the family of God and bestowed legal rights upon him as a servant and as a creature. Now, Adam was given a probationary period in which that he must remain faithful to the covenant that God established with him concerning the tree of good and evil. Now, I understand that Adam was made a citizen or a servant in God's kingdom and was given the added blessing of being a son in the very family of God. But this was held out to him on condition that he abide in the state wherein he was created. And if sin enters in, Adam will forfeit both his rights as a citizen in the kingdom and as a son in the family. If he stays and remains faithful in his probationary period, then an immutable, unchangeable citizenship will be bestowed upon him, and an immutable, unchangeable sonship will be Adam's reward for his faithfulness to God. And hypothetically, if Adam had stood, all of his descendants would have stood in him. But sin entered into the picture. And this is why if we overlook the second characteristic of Adam's sonship in Eden on the morning of his creation, it will lead to numerous confusions and contradictions in our understanding of the gospel. And that is the second, the dissolvability of Adam's original sonship. Inasmuch as man became a son through adoption, he could cease to be a son through the nullifying of his adoptive privileges as spelled out by the conditions imposed upon him by God. Now listen carefully. If man's sonship had been generative by nature, it could not be terminated except God annihilate man entirely. But since it was adoptive and conditioned upon Adam's faithfulness, since it was a legal adoption, that legal adoption could be nullified because the conditions imposed were not met. So Adam could be a son and then forfeit his sonship rights through sin during his probationary period. Now, when Adam did sin, he suffered a great loss. In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall, what is it? Surely die. Adam lost something in the fall. What did he lose? He lost first his citizenship in God's kingdom, so that now he is a rebel and an outlaw and an outcast citizen. But he also lost his place in the family of God to where that he is now an unwanted and illegitimate and disinherited son. The contract has been nil and void. Adam no longer can walk up to God and say, Our Heavenly Father. He has forfeited that right and that privilege. Now, in doing so, it is then incumbent to summarize man's sonship in relation to God as Father. It is in this fashion. Now, follow carefully as we bring this to a conclusion. All men in Adam possessed a natural sonship, which was adoptive in nature. Secondly, this original sonship must now be viewed in the past tense as a relation which has now been terminated because of man's sin. 
Thirdly, a special and gracious sonship is now bestowed upon a portion of mankind who are the objects of the Father's electing love, the Son's atoning blood, and the Spirit's effectual call. Hence, all men were the children of God in Adam. Now, since the fall, no man is a child of God. The only right and hope for any man to own God and to call God his heavenly Father is through the gospel plan of redemption and salvation. Now, we believe if this be properly understood, then you can see the necessity of the gospel. That man needs a Savior. What is the gospel plan of redemption? It involves the restoring to man what was lost in the fall. What did man lose in the fall? He lost his citizenship rights as a servant in the kingdom of heaven, and he lost his family rights as a son in the family of God. And bless God, that's exactly what the gospel is designed to do, is to restore to fallen man what he lost in the fall, so that man can now be a child of God. He can now be a citizen fully justified in the kingdom of heaven through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These twin graces, known as justification and adoption, exactly replace what man lost in the fall in the garden. I want to conclude it in this fashion. Man lost his standing as a subject and as a son in the courtroom of God. And all of his sinful life consists in bringing this loss more and more into his consciousness. Man's always wondering what's wrong. What's wrong? Why ain't things going right? What is coming to his consciousness is what he has lost in Adam. He lost the privileges of a citizen, and he lost the privileges of sonship. And man in his sin is becoming more and more conscious of that the longer that he lives. But similarly, man, when he is first redeemed, regains his standing in the kingdom of God, in the house of God. Now listen carefully. And the remainder of his Christian life consists in bringing out into his conscious awareness the facts and the privileges of his restored positions. That's why we can preach the old, old story. And you can like it and want to hear it more and more. Because the more you hear it, the more it comes to your consciousness of what you have had regained and bestowed upon you through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as you live in this life, you shall forever, having be brought out in your consciousness, what Jesus has done for you in the gospel, in restoring your citizenship and restoring your sonship into the family of God. In gracious justification, the rights and the privileges of a citizen are restored. In regeneration and sanctification, the spirit and the temperament of the citizen are developed. Similarly, gracious adoption conveys to the once disinherited son, now listen, the right of a child. But regeneration and sanctification convey the nature and the disposition of a child. Justification relating to one's citizenship. Adoption relating to one's sonship. Both of these are legal and objective in that they restore our privileges in the understanding and the view of God. But regeneration and sanctification restore the inward nature and disposition of a citizen to be an obedient servant and the nature of a child to love his heavenly father. Adoption gives Legal rights, regeneration, and sanctification give a nature wherein we love the Father. So the great distinction then to be distinguished in this debate is that between of a natural adoption of man in Eden and a gracious adoption of man at Calvary.
If you see those two distinctions, it'll help this thing to keep clear from the fuzzy thinking of this view of the children of God theory. Now, the concluding reason why then we must reject the children of God theory as related to infants. First, its major premise has been shown to be unscriptural in fact. Man is not a natural born child of God since the fall of Adam. But secondly, why we must reject this view of infant salvation is that it gives the infants no part or privilege in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So that if this view be true, then the little infant could enter heaven and someone could ask, God the Creator could ask, my creature, what right do you have to be here? And the little child could say, I was a natural born child of yours. He needs no Savior. Beloved, fallen man needs a Savior. He needs justification to give him the rights of a lawful citizen in the kingdom. And he needs adoption, gracious adoption, to give him the right of a child to call God his heavenly father. I ask my hearers tonight, in your consciousness this evening, what are you aware of? Are you aware of the grace of justification? Are you aware of the grace of adoption? So that when the gospel is preached, you can say with Abraham, it makes my heart happy. I'm going to be delivered. The day is coming when a sovereign, saving Messiah shall deliver me from my sin and bondage. And he's already set up his kingdom in my heart. And working more and more until that day of complete redemption occurs, and I am delivered and set free to serve my Lord the way the Son of God served his own Lord. Let's close in prayer.